0: 2012 was a remarkably fruitful year for Christian publishers, a striking fact that I was reminded of recently as I gathered up all my favorite releases from the year and compiled into a list of my 12 favorite books of the year. I published that list on the Desiring God blog. And among all the books and excellent reference works and Bible commentaries, and among all the new books on marriage and family, and books for kids and books for husbands and wives and books for leaders and pastors, I can honestly say that no book was more enjoyable to read and no book was more richly insightful than a book written by Pastor Steve DeWitt titled Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything, published by Credo House. Eyes Wide Open is a book about the deeply rooted desire for beauty that we all find within ourselves. We are beauty junkies, he writes, and the God who put that deep desire for beauty inside of us is the same God who offers himself in Christ to ultimately fulfill that longing for beauty. The true brilliance of this book is that it first looks at the beauty of Christ and the beauty of God's holiness, and it is through the divine beauty and through the Trinitarian beauty that all lesser created beauties of this world are illuminated. This is a book about how we properly delight in created beauty in light of the all-satisfying delight we find in Christ. And of all the excellent books published and released in 2012, this is my choice for the book of the year. And I almost missed it. As I later discovered, DeWitt presented his manuscript to eight different Christian publishers, and he got rejected all eight times. It was Credo House, a small publisher, who saw the vision for the book and published it, and we can be glad that they did. Recently, I put author Steve DeWitt on the line to talk about his book. Steve has served as a senior pastor at Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana, for the last 14 years, and I began by asking him to provide a very basic definition of what beauty is in the first place.
1: Well, when you think about beauty, right away you are on the horns of a dilemma, because uh, humanly speaking, it would seem to be a very subjective question, like the phrase, Beauty is in the eye of, of the beholder. Well, in the book, I don't begin with uh, man's perspective on beauty, but begin with divine beauty, uh, which is the sum of all of the perfections of God found in those inner Trinitarian relationships, where they eternally self-give in agape love. The overflow of that in creation then is these. Uh, creative reflections of that glory built into this world. And uh, beauty is a very, it's a hard thing to put your, your finger on, but I think we all know it when we see it, taste it, feel it, touch it, hear it. So I would say it is, at its core, it is divine, it is sourced in God, and in this world it is reflective of that eternal divine beauty.
0: And why is it that we as humans are hardwired to spend uh, our lives chasing beauty?
1: Well, I would have to say it's, the, it's, our, it's our image bearing. We, in our very wiring, designed by a beautiful God with sensory abilities to receive beauty into our minds and into our hearts, we are wired to want and crave and enjoy uh, beauty in, in all of those sensory experiences, which God built into us to make us long for him. I, I believe this is why every creative beauty on the other side of the beauty is uh, is disappointing, or as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, it feels meaningless to us apart from God as the source. So God made God, as a beautiful God, made his image bearers uh, long and desire for beauty wherever it's found, but in those creative beauties, a deeper desire for an ultimate beauty, which is which is him.
0: And I think this is what sets your book apart. You interpret all of beauty through divine beauty. On page 40, you, you say this, quote, "...the cross is love's highest human expression and beauty's ultimate source." Before a sunset or a mountain range or a painting or a song can be relished as beautiful, our souls have to awaken to true beauty. The cross is true beauty, and everything else is reflection." End quote. How is it that the cross and the death of Christ, for all of its heinousness, for all of its ugliness, how is the cross beautiful?
1: Well, if we, if we begin with Christ in his, in his person, before we talk about his work, in his person, He is the incarnational sum of all of those perfections. He is, in human form, the beauty that God has been for all of eternity. And so we look at his character, his manner of life, primarily, I would say, his love and self-giving, and we see in the nature of his person and his life the most remarkable life that has has ever been lived— uh, true beauty, then, in in his personhood. But then you go to the cross, and you have this uh, true contradiction, because the cross goes down as one of the most horrific uh, instruments and, and execution devices ever, and yet with Christ on it, it is the most beautiful moment in all of human history. And I think it is primarily because the center of all beauty, at the very core of what beauty is, is the self giving nature of God within the Trinity, the Father to the Son, Son to the Spirit, and uh, you know, vice versa, in all those relationships. And in the cross, we get in that in, in those hours as Jesus died for us, we we get to feel and to see and to understand what those Trinitarian relationships have enjoyed for all eternity, namely Christ self-giving everything for us. So the core of beauty then is displayed in the cross as Christ gives his life as a sacrifice for us, the giving of all that he is, his very life uh, poured out for us. And at the core then of that beauty is is, is the not specifically the cross, but the self-giving Savior on it. So that I go on to say that until you understand that as, as ultimate beauty, we, we fail to understand that all the other beauties that we enjoy, from mountain ranges to coffee cups of coffee to whatever, are reflections of that ultimate beauty as found in Christ.
0: In what particular ways does the fall, the entrance of sin into creation, how does that impact us as beauty junkies? I mean, particularly in how we perceive and use or misuse created beauty.
1: If you go back in the story, I think Adam and Eve experienced the beauty of God. They saw him, walked with him in the garden, and saw the beauty of the sunrise and and, uh, the plants and food and all the rest. Uh, sexuality, they saw all of those things properly. They saw them as expressions of the goodness of this beautiful, wonderful, wonderful God. But in the fall then, uh, part of what fell is this, this beauty, desire, and craving so that now image bearers, as Romans 1 says, we worship, we long for created things rather than the creator. So beauty now becomes very possessive. Uh, so that the the uh, the fallen man uh, craves the beauty of a woman to possess her for himself. The fallen man uh, has to take a picture of the sunset in order to capture it, to have it, to possess it, uh, to buy the expensive painting and to hang it on the wall. And on a, you know the, 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 the Ferrari in the garage, whatever it may be, we don't merely want, to see beauty or experience it. We now want to possess it for ourselves. And I would say that that is part of the effect of the fall on beauty junkies like us. Think of the ills of society, where you have uh, the, the, the beautiful people in Hollywood, who apparently have everything that anybody could ever want, dying on a regular basis of drug overdoses, as an example. Uh, here you have people that, uh, humanly speaking, have achieved, have accomplished, have money, power, are themselves beautiful uh, in the eyes of man, and yet it doesn't satisfy them. And I think that that's if there's a if there's a core problem that we have with beauty is that we don't realize that it ultimately is disappointing because we want we not we want to possess beauty. And we want to derive meaning from created things rather than the creator. We get back to that Romans one, how fundamentally flawed we are, and yet we can't help ourselves. So that the the the, the drug abuser continues to try to have another high, and the, uh, the 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 music people keep going to another concert, another concert, another concert, thinking maybe this one will be the one that will be ultimate, and. Uh, the sex addict, another experience, another experience, another experience. But on the other side, always, always longing for more. I love the. I have a little quote from Tom Brady in the book where, after he'd won, I think three Super Bowl rings, he was interviewed by, 60 Minutes, and and he says in there after winning three Super Bowl rings, and here's a guy, you know, he's good looking and and he's got all the, things that guys could ever want. He says, you know, I just don't think this can be what life is all about. And they say, well, Tom Brady, then what is it all about? And he says, you know what, I really wish I knew. And it's just, to me, that's the indictment on, on our cravings and our longings. Apart from God, we cannot escape Solomon Ecclesiastes. It's meaningless.
0: And yet, at the same time, there's an ongoing struggle in the Christian life. Um, how hard is the battle to be personally convinced every day, day after day, that Christ is the most satisfying and beautiful thing, most beautiful person in the universe?
1: Well, I can I can speak for myself. This is the daily battle, is to remind my heart that I am not here for myself. Um, this is where the ministry of John Piper, and I think, has been so helpful. It's when my satisfactions are in God that I experience then that that kind of pleasure that God intended with a right relationship with him. And I I know that, uh, if I may quote John Piper one more time, here I am a desiring God, I probably should do so. Uh, I remember him saying that when he wakes up in the morning, Satan is sitting on his face. And what he meant by that is that every day we wake up, the flesh is trying to convince us to live for something other than What is ultimate? And uh, Christ is ultimate. He is the. He's the. As I say in the book, beauty is a breadcrumb trail intended to chaperone us back to the beauty of Christ, as the one that our hearts truly long for. And if we allow, if we allow beauty to do what it was intended to do, and understand why it's here, I think it can be a very vibrant part of a daily walk with with the Lord. And I would say, actually, enriches those those beauty moments uh, that, that we have. So that in a sense, the, the point of the book is how how your coffee can taste better and, and how uh, uh, the, the sex in marriage can be better and how your friendships can be better if we experience those things that we naturally enjoy for all the right reasons.
0: I'm interested to know at what point in your own life— did your eyes become wide open to the gifts that God has given in the beauty of creation? Do you remember a point when that happened?
1: I began reading on this subject probably 10 years ago, maybe more. I had, uh, it was a little comment a friend of mine made that really kind of got me thinking about it. I, he was a, like, heavy rock and roll dude, and we'd kind of, in friendly way, banter back and forth. And he made a comment one time uh, when I was criticizing his choice of music. He said, uh, you, I, I forgot that uh, only Christians are made in the image of God, and it dawned on me. I got thinking about that, and I thought, you know what? Why does Madonna do what Madonna does? You know, back in that time, why 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 did Dennis Rodman do what Dennis Rodman was doing? You know, all of these apparent antics, and even in art and culture, these expressions that seem outlandish at times. How do you explain that? And it began me on a journey of thinking about, I'd call it, it's, this is more of a worldview kind of a book and thought where to see in the grand scheme of things, what is the purpose of natural beauty, man-made beauty, um, art culture, architecture, all these different things that we're just all the time doing and yet we don't think about it. And I would say that it was a slow process for me. There was no dawning Moment. Other than maybe an, uh, a, a second one would be my mom and dad went up to Denali, and she came back and she said, you know what, I just I looked at that mountain, and I wanted to burst out with um, How Great Thou Art. And this that comment made me think, you know what, that's what we're supposed to do with beauty. And then I began thinking and reading, and uh, there's a book by Thomas Dubé that was very formative and helpful, and, but I found that there really isn't very much out there on this. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe somebody should write a book about it, and maybe that somebody uh, should be me. And so then I began to work on the project.
0: Well, I'm glad you did. Uh, one of the questions that I can imagine listeners have right now is, is how we as Christians balance the fact that this world is full of God's created beauty with the fact also that this is a fallen world, and much of what we see around us is twisted and distorted by sin. Uh, we, we don't want to be pantheists, obviously, and we don't want to, on the other hand, close our eyes to created beauty, but as a fallen beauty, how do we navigate our course here as we as we look at God's created beauty and appreciate what we see?
1: That's a great question, because that really gets down to the practical application of what we're talking about. I think that the key is, first of all, for Christians to have a biblical understanding, a biblical worldview— on the uh, uh, on creation and on the world around them and to understand it for what it truly is you know nature is god's self portrait and the pantheists give god a it's a kind of compliment i think because they look at how amazingly beautiful the creation is and they say it must be god let's worship let's worship it let's call it let's call it god but it is not God, it is merely a reflection of God. And this is where I think uh, the analogy of the sun and the moon is a helpful one. If all that you saw your whole life was the moon, you could easily think that it is it is the sun. Uh, until the sun rises and you actually see the sun, now you realize, wait a second, that moon is not the sun, it's a faint reflection of what the actual sun is like. And I would suggest that once I come to know the sun, S U N, and see it for in all of its blazing glory, now I can actually enjoy the moon for the sake of the sun, because I realize that it is reflecting the glory, this burning glory of the of the real thing. So that in salvation, I believe we come to understand the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And as a result of that, now I can see all of these, all the moonlight around me, which the Bible says the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. So all of these created beauties are intended to be a kind of moonlight reflection, even to a fallen mankind, of the actual glory of Christ. So 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the unbelievers, they can't see the glory of God in the face of, in the glory of, not in the face of Jesus, but in salvation and by the Spirit, now I come to see the glory of Christ, and since all these pleasures now around me are intended to remind me of him, as a believer with a Christian worldview, I can actually enjoy them for Jesus' sake, which I would suggest makes the strawberry pie taste better and makes the sunset look better and makes the marital intimacy uh, all the more pleasurable.
0: Okay, one more tricky question, and and this is it. Why is it possible for non-Christian artists, um, for musicians and painters and actors and novelists and poets, uh, why is it possible for them to create beautiful art that at times leads a Christian to actually lift their heart and worship to God? How is that possible?
1: Well, they clearly do, don't they? And uh, it's, it's really... It's really wonderful, uh and I would suggest to be enjoyed. I write in the book about how we we this is part of the trickiness of beauty because it it is so powerful to us, and we enjoy it so much, but all art i I believe it was uh Picasso who said all art uh tells a lie, and what he means by that, I think, is that all art is it's all saying something. It is always saying something from the perspective of the artist. It is telling a story. And I would say that this is why it is so critical that as Christians with renewed minds understanding the biblical story, we see art as storytelling. And when that artist is telling the story consistent with the biblical narrative, of creation, fall, redemption, consummation—some little aspect of it—and it can be anything that we can enjoy that beauty because it's telling—it's telling the story truthfully. Much art, though, is is telling uh, the story as a as, in its contradiction, so that. There is uh, there's conflict in the in the story, or the picture is of war and and pain, or whatever it might be. In other words, they're they're not saying they're not telling the story the way that it ought to be. They're telling it the way that it is. And in those moments, the Christian has to see that and to recognize. That this is, for example, a result of the fall. This is what selfish men do against one another. This is a picture of the pain and the corruption in this broken world. And to see that part of the story similarly through the through the narrative of Scripture. And then I would thirdly say that uh, there is art that uh, tells the story from the perspective of uh, the way that it's not supposed to be. And when this is the case, it is. Um, I think particularly challenging to understand uh, that even when art is saying things that are ugly and broken and even, I would suggest, profane, that that telling of the story can also be told truthfully. And when it is not told truthfully, to see the lie and to rejoice in the truth, and when it tells the story uh, if, if I could say it this way, when it, if it tells lies truthfully, to also rejoice in the, the grander scheme, and that this is part of what Christ is in the process of restoring and redeeming and this is hard i i 've written about it. I would not say that i've figured all of that out. It is very difficult to do when you turn on the news and you turn on the you know you go to the movie or listen to music, but uh, we need to do it because beauty can very subtly speak lies to our heart.
0: From all your time studying and researching and writing, I mean, what is the big takeaway from this book?
1: Well, I, I think the, the thing, the, the big takeaway for me in it is that uh, the, the basic core of, of the book is that beauty leads to wonder, and wonder leads to worship. And if if I can just plant that in my heart and look for opportunities as I experience pleasures and joys and beauties, big and small, to to take those moments and to capture them and to allow them to draw my heart to God in thanksgiving, maybe in giving Him honor, in holy contemplations, whatever it may be, that uh, the creation around us can be a part of my growth as a disciple of, of Christ and uh, the fruit of it, the, gloriously the fruit of it, is that my aesthetic experiences are better and more enjoyable when I enjoy them uh, for Jesus' sake. And this is, I think, First 1 Corinthians 10.31, a favorite verse I know, at Desiring God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And uh, beauty plays a central role in that, and I, I, hope the church, uh, I hope the church opens her eyes and enjoys God in everything.
0: That was Pastor Steve DeWitt from his office in Crown Point, Indiana. Steve is the author of the new book, Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything, published by Credo House. And it's also my choice for the Christian Book of the Year for 2012. You can find my entire list on the Desiring God website by searching top 12 books of 2012 in the search bar of the website. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes Store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke, Thanks for listening.